Glenda Hoon Russell is a serial entrepreneur. She's owned businesses since she was in elementary school. She sounds like me. She's now a content creator and speaker and soon to be published author. Her book is called The Status Quo. Since 2017, Glenda, ha- Glenda and her husband have been living and working in an RV and they travel around the U.S. now, which is really cool. Glenda, how are you today? Welcome to the Man Overseas Podcast. Hey, Brad. I am so excited about this and just excited to have a conversation with, with you today. So thank you so much for inviting me. I'm glad you're here. Are you in an RV right now? I am. I am sitting in the passenger seat of our RV right now where we basically turn the seat around and I, I have my desk set up with my big iMac and that's my desk. So <laughs> and my husband's in the back of the RV with the door closed so I can do this interview today. Oh, that's really cool. And where are you on the map? Yeah. We are currently in Boise, Idaho. So we we are on our way to Washington State where we will spend the winter. And there's a an area that uh, in Walla Walla, Washington, that my my husband's headquarters for his job is located. And we just decided that although, you know, six to nine months out of the year, we're traveling, moving around from different locations. But this year we wanted to try living up north and seeing what it's like and seeing if we, we like living in a, in a colder climate because being as, in a, as a native Texan, I've always lived in, uh, you know, just like you, <laughs> living in Houston, we, we lived in a warmer cli- climate, so we didn't technically have a winter. <laughs> so, I, uh, so we just wanted to try it out and see if we liked winter and trying out winter sports. So we're, we're really excited about being up here. And so here's what I want to know. Yeah. There are 24 hours in a day, right? On average, how many hours per day do you spend with your husband or within a few feet of your husband? <laughs> Golly, I, I, would, I would say about 22 hours in a day I'm with my husband. <laughs> because, because we, you know, we sleep, you know, six to eight hours a night. Sure. And then we both wake up and we have our own routines. He's more of a, an early bird where he gets up at about 5.30. I generally get up between 6.30 and 7. So he's, you know, doing his thing and I'm doing my thing. And then he works at the dinette, which is about 10 feet away. And then I work at the very front of the RV. And we just we just do our thing and we, we work our normal work days and I, the only time that we are really separated is I am, I'm a very active person. So and I say very active, only one to two hours a day, but I try to go to a yoga class, a CrossFit class. And I do that also to separate myself from being inside the RV because uh, it, you can get a little claustrophobic after you're in here for a while. So I'll, I'll generally leave to, to a to some kind of class and then in the evenings you know we have this routine where we we have a labrador that we travel with and if you know anything about labradors they they need to have their exercise and so we'll we'll take our lab to a park we'll go on a little hike or you know just something to kind of start walking and that's something that that Chris and I actually my husband we 
we try to do that at least every day because that's when we get the best conversations together is when we're actually out and about walking and then we fill each other in of what's going on and uh, and then we, we head home and have dinner together and uh, and then do our, our night routine of, you know, just basically meditation and go to bed. And so that's our, that's our day. And people think that we're crazy for spending so much time together. But, you know, I think it's one of those things that we're incredibly fortunate to have each other. And we have a, a really good friendship. So we actually like each other. But we're also a couple that, you know, we're normal people who get sick of each other too. So, but you just have to take those matters into your hands and go find something to do. Go, go off and uh, find a little community or, um, so we, we have our, our tactics <laughs> to yeah. deal with that since we've been doing this for so long. Do you have Netflix? We do have Netflix, but that's about it. Oh, and Amazon prime just because it comes with prime, but those are our only, uh, the television outlets. There's a Netflix documentary called Voyeur. Have you seen it? I haven't. What's it about? It's about a guy who owned and operated a motel just outside of Denver, Colorado. And he was a peeping Tom. <laughs> so for many years, he would spy on his guests in their rooms. And one day he called a columnist that worked for the New Yorker magazine because he thought that that particular col that columnist would be interested in this story of him spying on people in his motel. So he turned out to be right. And the writer flew down from New York to check out this platform that the guy had built in an attic. And he built it primarily or solely for the purpose of satisfying his voyeuristic impulses. And this was back in 1980. So anyway, they go up in the attic together. They watched, they even watched a couple have sex below them and didn't tell the columnist didn't tell the authorities. He didn't write a story about it. He sat on it for like 30 years. And he ended up finally in 2016 publishing the article in the New Yorker magazine because he was still employed there. And then it became a movie and a Netflix documentary. And um, this, this peeping Tom guy would not only watch people in their room, but he would document what he learned about people. And so he was sort of a student of human nature. And it completely changed his view of humans because he was, over time, he got sickened by just the nature of people because he heard people at their most selfish and raw and entitled. And um, it's been a while since I read the article. I should probably link it, to the sh link it in the show notes since I'm talking about it so much. But um, he would tell stories of people mooching off the government. And he was, this is a long time ago, so he heard stories about people who killed people during the Vietnam War and how they did it and just the stories that just disgusted him. Anyway, well, here's what I thought was really interesting. If you can get past the perverted nature of it all, you realize this guy's giving you a glimpse into human behavior that you, would, you wouldn't possibly get any other way, right? You're literally becoming a fly on the wall. Not literally, but as close as you can be to a fly on the wall. Anyway, here's what I remember most from the article. He said that the majority of vacationers spend their time miserable. And that they fight about money, they fight about where they're going to visit, um, they fight about sex. He couldn't believe how much people, because they're supposed to be on vacation while they're staying in his motel, he couldn't believe how, how much people fight. All that is to say that you're living, a lot, you're living in an RV full time, which is kind of like being on vacation. 
So my question is, do you think that you fight more than other couples? Tough to say, right? We're no. in the same boat, by the way. Yeah. So that's why it's an interesting conversation. <laughs> we, we work, my wife has now social media clients that she's helping. And I do some, I do podcasts and I write for the blog and I have a coaching business. So we, we still are working too, despite being financially independent and retired and all that. You still have to do things to occupy your time. So sometimes I will go to a coffee shop on a Monday and that's, and when I come home at the end of the day, that's almost like being at work. But you've told me that you're spending 22 hours a day to where, yeah, yeah I would see where you could get, you'd get sick of any human being in that close of quarters for that long. So unless you deliberately create some space, I would think that you might tend to fight more than most couples, but that's the kind of feedback I'm trying to get from you. I don't know. I think it's an interesting topic. No, I I love this question because I think in our first couple of years, so we've been on the road since 2017 and the first one to two years, first of all, there was a lot going on. The grieving process after someone you loved is, I mean, it's years long process, right? To, to eventually heal. Right. And so I was going through that emotional trauma and then Chris was, he's always been a very supportive person. So of course, during that time of also just trial and error, we were, we were absolutely, and I say fighting, I maybe bickering a little bit more than usual because our, our fighting is usually something like we'll, we'll get a little angry at each other for whatever reason. And then we eventually laugh it off because it's so funny that we're being upset with each other. And we were very good about resolving things. So asking for making sure that one person forgives the other person and then the other person reassures that just that they have been forgiven. Right. It's, Mm -hmm. it's that, it's basically sealing that and we're that's something we learned in marriage counseling very early on was that whenever we do have some kind of fight to make sure to seal the deal I don't know how how else to put it but just to to be sure to resolve it and make sure that the other person is is comfortable moving forward and that everything has been all the cards have been put on the table and so Absolutely. Our first couple of years, we've been, we were, we were fighting a lot more, but just like you said, we, we've learned to create space and there's things like, I, I joke around that my Bose headphones (laughs) saved my marriage because Chris is constantly on the phone with his clients, his employees. And so the, especially being 10 feet from each other, I am, I constantly hear his conversations and my preference isn't to go in the very back and sit on the bed to work. I actually like sitting at a desk. So I feel like I'm in my own little workspace, not laying in my bed where I'm supposed to be resting. In order to be productive, I needed to have some kind of just silence or music going on. And so I, you know, there's, so those both headphones really helped with, with that type of agitation that I would feel towards him when he was just doing his job. You know, it wasn't his problem. It was my problem. <laughs> so 
it's we we figured out little ways to just compromise and uh, there's also a time period every single year where I travel on my own. I go to uh, whether it's a an, an ashram or a yoga retreat. I go visit a friend. I love going to conferences, and so we'll we'll travel a bit. So those breaks in between are very helpful to to be distant from each other, and it allows you to miss the other person because I think that especially after being together. Oh, oh my gosh. And I, I always forget how long we've been together. We've been married since 2011, but we've been friends for, I think, 15 years. But anyway, so being together for that long of a period, there's tons of ups and downs, right? There's tons of dips. And so it's, uh, it's important to realize and become aware of when you are getting agitated, that usually it's, it's not the other person. It's that you're agitated with, with their, something that they're doing, but you have to step back and reflect at what, what can I be doing that I'm not going to be agitated. And I know that we'll get into this a little bit later, but it's focusing on what you can control. And it's about the emotions and my reactions to things that I can control. So I try to reflect and look at it, it as how can I change what I'm doing before I snap at him or get upset at him. And that has just mitigated our, our, our fights. Uh, I mean, at, you know, 90, 95%. That's great. I've written on my blog some about the differences between men and women. And I think that we do ourselves a disservice when as a society by not educating our youth on male female differences. <laughs> I think it should be part of the school curriculum because there's nothing more important than the relationship between man and woman. Uh, at least that's how right. I see it. Um, but I, I like everything that you just said there about, especially about um, how you know that it's you because somebody else might not be affected the same way, right? By his constant work calls or, or whatever it is that annoys you, it can't be them if it doesn't, if it wouldn't annoy the next person. I have all these little idiosyncrasies like, like that. Um, if like sudden loud noises really get to me, like it bothers me, it's not that person. It's totally me. My wife started using okay. plastic forks because she will bang the fork on the plate and it just, it makes me jump. I, it, it's something, yeah. And so she's like, oh, well, I'll just do this to accommodate you. But it's, it's sad for her if she wants to use a regular fork because it's all me. It's not her. So I, I like what you said about creating space too. So one of the differences between men and women, I think that if there's a book called Wild at Heart that I read probably 10 or 15 years ago that I need to revisit, but I remember it talking about man's basic need for freedom and how um, that separation is something that is innate or that desire for separation, at least periodically. So we create man caves and we go fishing and we go hunting. And historically, women had their own hierarchies and men had their own hierarchies. And in modern society nowadays, we have, we have combined the hierarchies to where women are competing with men. And so there's a lot of testosterone and people come home exhausted at the end of the day. Yeah, we've got to figure it all out. But I think that 
conversations like this, if people are willing to be candid, can be helpful to people. So create some space, folks that are listening, that are having some trouble. Um, it's healthy to, to uh, spend some time away and allow yourself to miss that person. I think that's great. One of the things that our culture doesn't embrace, and I see it, I see it a little more now than I did maybe 10 years ago, but it, it's okay to be alone. You know, I, I think it's all about perspective. You can sit in a room and be alone and think, oh gosh, poor me, you know, I'm all alone. Or you can think, wow, all of this freedom that I have to just sit here and rest and be with myself. And so it, it really is about changing your perspective in that being alone, especially if you're more on the introverted scale, that you need to recharge your battery. And that, that that's an essential to, to that part of your, the way that your brain functions and the way that you recharge, realizing what you need instead of just constantly go, go, going and realizing that, man, I, I just need a break right now, or I just need some time to myself. And it could be a walk, it could be a drive, it could be however, whatever makes you happy, you know, it, it just, or it could be socializing with other people, you know, it might not necessarily be alone, but that, that awareness is so critical, I think, in, in just being able to, well, one, our happiness, but also just being able to recharge and move forward. So are you saying there's a stigma with people who are alone at a restaurant that we need to get over and allow those people their solitude because it's a healthy thing? Is that what you're saying, that there's a stigma attached and as a society we need to get away from that? I do believe there's a stigma to being alone, yes. Yeah. I, if you hear someone, especially a female, say, I'm going to go travel the world all by myself, people tilt their head a little bit, you know, and they, they think, man, that by yourself, like that's crazy, you know, and yet I see men and women doing that all by themselves for five months to five years or 50 years traveling by themselves. And they are just completely content and by the, and, and with, with what they're doing. And it just, and I, I think that sitting in a restaurant, seeing someone sitting in a restaurant now, I appreciate someone who is sitting at a restaurant, not looking at their phone and just enjoying their meal, a glass of wine. I think that that's incredibly beautiful. Whereas I, I think that people do think it's a little odd that someone is sitting by themselves and they're not scrolling through their phone. Like they're, I've seen this meme float around that someone that's sitting by themselves at a restaurant without their phone is a serial killer or something like that. So it's, uh, I, I think that it's definitely, or yeah, I think it's definitely a stigma. So, whereas I think it's empowering. Yeah. That empowerment would be a very modern thing, right? Because for 99% of human history, if a woman turned to the tribe and said, I'm going to go travel alone. <laughs> Something else that I've written about is how police forces are only about 200 years old. So historically, you would have had to find, as a, as a female, had to find a male provider, protector. But <clears throat> that, that's not needed as much anymore. So you can be fiercely independent and travel the world. And many of us are slow to realize that. So you decided to sell everything and 
you live on the road full time. How do you make that decision? So we did this in two, back in 2017. And the main trigger was, was losing both of my parents. And after my mom passed away, two weeks later, Chris was laid off from his job. And this wasn't a new concept to us. We've been, between the two of us, we've been laid off a total of four times. This was such a big wake-up call for us that instead of seeing these things that kept happening with, with the grieving of my, the loss of my parents as well as this job loss, we, we looked at it as windows of opportunity and said, you know, why don't, we, why don't we just do something different? Because we had talked about in the past, you know, years before that we wanted to do something a little off the beaten path. We wanted to go live in other countries. We wanted to, uh, you know, bounce around from different Airbnbs. Like, let's look into RVing and see what that's like. So, you know, we had these dreams that were just dreams. We would talk about them and then we'd proceed back into our, our lane and, and <laughs> march along in our, our normal life. We just realized that, that life is so incredibly fragile that let's, let's do something different because it was, I don't think that Chris would have ever been in a situation where he wasn't working that corporate office job. It, it, especially in the route that he was going with Deloitte. And that was a, you know, those jobs are incredibly demanding where he had to be in an office. He had to travel 48 weeks out of the year. He, you know, it was just a, that, that's just the culture of the big four, right? Cool. So I want to know more about your RV. At what point did you buy it? Okay. Was, did you have it before your parents passed away? No, we bought it after they passed away. We knew that we wanted to pay cash for the RV because we don't believe in debt. We, we stay away from it at all costs. The only, the only reason that we would go into debt is if Chris ever goes into a partnership. That's the only reason, right? Or if I ever... Uh, needed some kind of business loan or something like that. But, uh, you know, other than that, that's the only debt that we'll, we'll accumulate. This, this RV, although it's older, it's a 2006, it's a, and it's a Class A. So to give you a picture of what it looks like, it, it, it's like a bus where the, the driver's seat and the passenger seat is at the front. It's, it's like one big car, right? And then we tow our Jeep Wrangler behind us. How much money? The, how much does an RV cost? Give me. I have no clue. I've never. Yeah, I think we purchased the RV for uh, thirty-two, thirty-two thousand. I've read on your blog that you went through some significant challenges in your business when you went on the road, and I imagine that your husband had to have conversations with his employer about always being on the road. So, can you give me an idea of? If somebody listening wanted to transition into an RV lifestyle like you're living, what sort of conversations happen with employers or prospective employers or clients? And how are you able to maintain their trust as you travel around the country? Yeah, so let me start with with my husband and then I'll go into my business. But with Chris, when, when we first started on the road, we were, of course, incredibly nervous about what are we going to do for his work. He just asked, 
you know? And I think that that's one of the things that's different from today than maybe 10 or 20 years ago is that I think employers are a lot more open to remote positions. I think that there's tons of benefits to having remote workers. Yeah. So those companies exist out there. And I believe as people that, especially that are in our age group, are leading companies with strong cultures of remote uh, remote cultures and these abilities to know that or realize that you don't have to be in this office setting to build these incredible businesses and to, to have trust with clients and to, uh, you know, and to build empires, right? That, that you can, you can do it from the comfort of your home and, and you might be wearing, uh, you know, nothing. comfortable pants or something, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah or nothing, <laughs> whatever you're into, Brad. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I really like so. your Instagram and I like the quotes that you share just as much as the pictures. Is it uh, at Glenda Hoon Russell? Is that your Instagram? Yes. At Glenda Hoon Russell. Yeah. Okay. So your quotes seem a little more esoteric than let's say someone who lives conventionally, which is how it should be, right? You're traveling and you have different thoughts and a different way of living. And so I think what you produce is really cool. So um, is there a quote that you've internalized that you maybe live by? One of my favorite ones is, until you give up the idea that happiness is somewhere else, it will never be where you are. Mm. And I don't know who said this, but I think as someone, and you can vouch for this as well, is people who have traveled, who have done those things that you know, people look at us and they say, oh, you're so lucky. And I, I hate it when people, say, <laughs> when people say that, but because I'm like, listen, this, this had nothing to do with luck other than being a, you know, a white woman born into a middle-class family. That was luck. But all the choices that I've made in my life, you know, where I could have gone in these different directions with alcoholism, I could have gone in these other directions that I've chosen to go into this one direction. And I think it's important that our society is constantly pushing on us this, uh, this destination addiction, that happiness is, is in the next location. It's, in, it's this Friday. It's this weekend when you finally get off work. It's when you finally get through this week or it's when you finally can take a vacation or you get through this project that, Happiness is this next step. And what I've realized in all the years of my traveling is that you can, you can travel everywhere that you want to go. And I, I completely recommend people to travel, and I'm a huge advocate of it. But if you're not content with who you are and your actions and your behaviors and all of those little thoughts that are going through your head. And I, I always cringe when I say this, but if you don't love yourself, I, you're never going to be happy. And so that's the, for me, that's the true path of happiness is actually being content with who you are at this moment and being able to love yourself for your past and letting that go and being open to whatever the future is going to bring you. I love that. 
I read an article on your blog about building self-esteem and you broke it down into four manageable steps. And number one was stop comparing. I believe you were quoting someone else, but it said that unhappy people spend hours comparing themselves to other people, both above and below themselves. But happy people don't compare themselves with anyone. (laughs) And I'm sure that's where you are. And I am too. And it's a wonderful place to be. I don't compare myself to anyone. And then as far as what you said about you'll be happy when, if you're not happy with what you have now, you will not be happy when you get what it is that you think will make you happy. I mean, you may be temporarily excited, but it's, it's not going to be fulfilling. That is a fleeting feeling. So yeah, you've got to build joy into your life and create it in the now. And I'm sure that's why you have embraced stoicism. So I've seen some of that on your blog. And I think that that's probably become vogue in recent years because of all of the distractions and the anxiety that, that modern America is dealing with and thinking about everything but the present, right? Most of, a lot of stoicism and which I think if you go down the stoicism road, it'll lead you to meditation. And if you go down the meditation road, it'll hopefully get you to a place where you are more present state aware and not living in the past and living in the future because all we have is now. Yes. I just like with stoicism, I, I've had these philosophies kind of funneling around in my head, but I, I didn't know that they were an actual philosophy or they were, an, I wouldn't call Buddhism a religion, but I, you know, they weren't these actual uh, uh, practical avenues that you could take. And so when, when I started realizing that and I found Buddhism before I found Stoicism, by the way, because I was talking about Buddhism one day at a, at the dinner table with a friend, and they uh, they started asking me about Stoicism, and I I said, my goodness, I have, I have no idea what you're talking about. So the next day, I I found some books and articles and just started you know uh, diving into those. So it's a uh, it's something incredibly beautiful and there's this big connection I believe between stoicism and buddhism that it's all about focusing on what you can control and letting go of what you can't and I think that when you realize that we can control certain aspects in our life it's incredibly liberating because everything else doesn't matter you know, and so it it gives you this power back that I think that we are, our culture is giving away. You know, we, and I say, I say we, I guess I can only speak for myself, but I used to blame my unhappiness on everybody else but myself. <laughs> so I, I'm unhappy because my boss treated me this way. I'm unhappy because I don't have enough money. I'm unhappy because I... I can't go on this vacation because I have to work too hard. I'm unhappy because this person isn't the way that I thought they would be, you know, and those are just little examples, but I was blaming my unhappiness on everyone else but myself. And so what, what Stoicism and Buddhism has really brought to the table is that there are things we can control, which are our behaviors and our thoughts and our reactions. and in the end, that's all that really matters, you know, and 
that all the other stuff is just noise. And I want to be really clear because I know there's this stigma attached to stoicism that it's um, very laissez-faire, it's very uh, passive. And, but, but that's not the thing is that we're just directing our attention to things that we can control instead of thinking about the things that we can't control, like how someone, what someone thinks of us or what someone uh, said about us in, in a, in a meeting. I don't know any, anything that we just can't control that we like to focus on and, or at least I used to focus on. So. You talked about being lucky because you were born white and middle class. And I should say that I have always felt lucky because I figured out at a very young age what was out of my control and what wasn't. And it really helps you to eliminate a lot of the fat from life and helps you to be so much more efficient and controlling of your emotions. And yeah, I've had this ability to monitor and observe myself for a long time. And it took me a just it took me a long time to realize that not everybody had that ability. I mean, I talk to men in their forties quite a bit who are just coming to this realization that the serendipity prayer can help because you can't there are things that are going to impact your life that you cannot control. And so there's absolutely no reason to get riled up about it. And like you, I didn't I didn't discover stoicism until after I realized that I was <laughs> largely stoic. Um, yeah. Same with, with Buddhism. I realized, you know, I've been practicing these principles for a lot of years. That's interesting that there's something, there's an entire text out there that articulates how it is that I, that I largely think and believe. The same thing happened with me with financial independence, retire early, the whole fire movement. I was there and didn't know it. And then I found... I found these folks online. I think I started with Mr. Money Mustache and realized, whoa, there's this community that's, I'm one of those people and I don't even realize it. So there's a lot of that going on in my life. So that's so interesting. Beautiful. I love that um, yeah. you, you've written that, that death should be a positive thing, not something that we need to be scared of. I know what that means to me, but what do you, what do you mean by that? You know, I... Again, this goes back to what our culture has influenced on us. But I, when you sit at the table with some friends and someone mentions uh, like their, their grandmother died or, their, uh, or their, their, if someone tells you they have cancer, you know, they, there, is this, there is this change in us like, oh my God, I don't know what to say. I don't, you know, everyone kind of shifts in their seat, right? It's, it's very uncomfortable in our culture to talk about death. And what amazes me, and I, and I didn't realize this until I went through the stages of, of losing both of my parents, but that death is right around the corner for all of us. And the thing is, is that that's not something to be, uh, to be upset about, to be sad about, or to be scared of. Because if we know and we truly realize that death can happen, I mean, I can, when I go run an errand this evening, I, I could get in a car accident and I could die, right? And, or tomorrow I can go on a hike and get eaten by a bear or something like that, right? It's, it's always around the corner. And when you just kind of invite death 
to kind of sit next to you and to be your friend, it, you start to realize that what are you doing with your life right now? What are you doing that you won't have the regret that if you were to die tomorrow, since we don't know when we're going to die, what, what are you doing with your life? It's like this awakening and this beautiful motivation to actually go out there and do something, to do something you're passionate about, to make an impact, even if it's on one person, you know, just it, it has taught me to live differently because tomorrow's never promised and today might be my last chance. And so that's what, that's why I started this new business because I was, although I, I enjoyed the eight years of owning a graphic and website design firm, I now want to do something that's fulfilling. And I know it's going to take time and I know it's going to, I'm completely out of my comfort zone. But if I can share with one person that they can make a difference by evaluating their life, decreasing the noise that our society puts on us and living a life in their truth, that's worth it to me. That's absolutely worth it to me. And so I, that's how I live every single day. That's beautiful. Marcus Aurelius said, death smiles at us all and all we can do is smile back. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was in a motorcycle accident today. So I've lived over 14,000 days. I'm almost 40 years old. And the closest that I've ever wow. come to dying was a few hours ago. <laughs> so that's crazy. I was, um, oh I was in the left lane. We drive on the left here. And of course, I don't ride motorcycles every day, or not in the States at all. But there was a truck or a, I guess it was like a half truck, half SUV that was coming perpendicular to me on my left. And I don't know if the law is such that the person coming at the main road has the right of way, but I've noticed it happens a lot where people just speed right up to the, to the main road and turn left. And I was in that left lane where he wanted to turn left and he sped right up to the end and saw me at the last minute and I slammed on the brakes and it happened so fast. I was, I was laying on my side and people were starting to surround me and I thought, wow, that's how quickly death happens. It's that fast. And I didn't even turn the bike. All I did was, was slam on the brakes. And then, yeah, I was, I was all scraped up on my side. And, yeah, it was crazy. So, yeah, nuts. Man. Well, I'm glad you're still here. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> we would have had to reschedule yeah. for, for never. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, oh, man, that's, I, I know motorcycle accidents happen all of the time. And they're, they're no joke. I mean, even, even with a, a, a TBI, a traumatic brain injury that you can get from just hitting your head and I mean, it'll change your life. Right. And mm -hmm. so I, I hope that you, uh, yeah, I've, take I've care on that thing. <laughs> yeah, I've spent some time thinking about that too. You know, we're on Koh Samui Island in Thailand and they've called this Island, the Island of death because so many people, get killed on motorcycles. And when I was renting, they warned me to always wear my helmet. And they said that about two hours ago, somebody died or a couple, a young couple died in front of the 7-Eleven. He was driving and she was on the back. And 
what, so I'm extremely careful, but you can't control for other people. And that's right. if I was in a car today, I would have slammed on the brakes and nothing, we wouldn't have hit. We would have come inches from hitting each other and that would have been it. And he would have just gotten on the highway in front of me and we would have gone on. But since I was on a motorcycle, I slammed on my brakes and I put the bike down, which is really, really scary. Put a bike down. So, all right, enough of that. Let's get you some fun fun ones. (laughs) All right. Did, uh, Did Epstein kill himself? I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, that's awesome. That's life in an RV. That's an even better answer. That's, 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 I, I, even I'm trying to not watch the news and spend less time on Twitter, but the fact that you don't know what that is, that means that you have spent even less time than me. So good on you. <laughs> I, I, I filter a lot of what I watch. So I, I'm a little out of the loop unless it's a, it's a pretty traumatic, and this might've been traumatic, but um, yeah, yeah I'm, awesome. I'm out of the loop on that under that's a rock. Awesome. Next question. <laughs> Do you have a favorite podcast besides this one? Of course. Right. Of course. Right. So yes, right now I would say that my, my favorite podcast is secular Buddhism which isn't for everybody, but what it's by a, a gentleman named Noah Rochetta. And I just love his approach. It's, it's very, he uses common sense with a sprinkle of Buddhism. And he just puts things in perspective that anybody, no matter their, their religion, religious background or preferences, whether they're atheists, it's incredibly practical knowledge. And it's it's all about making yourself a better person, which is a huge goal of mine right now. Likewise. Is there a book that both you and your husband have read? We both read the, the Five Love Languages together by uh, Mr. Chapman. Yeah. We, you know, that's always a good one for any any relationship, actually any person. It has to do with any relationship, even if it's with your sister, your coworker, or whatever, I, I think that book is fantastic. Which is his and yours, lang- your number one? My love languages, and they change, right? They've definitely changed since we've read the book. But I would say that quality time and gifts are my two. Hmm. And uh, which, what's funny is I resisted the gift one for years, years, because I thought, I, I am the most minimal person. <laughs> I don't want gifts, but it's more of the thoughtfulness. Yes, that's it. That's it. Even if it's just a sticky note on my, on my desk, when he knows I'm having a bad day, I go for a run and he leaves a sticky note that just says, you can do this. I love you. I believe in you. Like to me, that's a gift right? Not, I don't want diamonds. I don't want cars. I don't want any of that crap. I just want to know that he's paying attention to me, mm. you know? And so, um, and, and he knows that he knows that I don't, I don't want those, those crazy gifts, but, and then his love languages are definitely personal, physical touch, uh, which is a, a lot of men's, I think is what they said in the book. 
And then uh, quality time is another one with his. I mean, he, you know, if I'm, if we decide to sit down together and watch a, a documentary, we're big documentary people too. And I'm, you know, trying to put in my little bit of time into Instagram. I will, you know, he'll wait for me to put down the phone because he considers that quality time. So, because he just doesn't like me being on my phone if we're, if we decide to watch a documentary together. So, you know, that, that's just one little tiny example of, of, uh, of quality time. And that I, I, I respect that, right. I give him, you know, every meal that we have together, we're not on our phones. We don't have a TV going. We may have music going, but we are, we are sitting there together having a conversation or just being there in silence together. I like what you said there. Yeah, it brings me back to when I talked about male-female differences earlier and why it should be taught as part of the school curriculum because I think you will very often find out that men's number one is touch. And like you said, it said in the book, my, my one is touch and it might as well be one through four and then the rest be five, A, B, C, and D. Um, and then what you said about your your example of a gift was attention <laughs> and I, that's that's awesome but i mean num, you know as much as men's number one would be touch i think a woman's would probably be some sort of attention yeah yeah that's good right it's that simple right i don't understand why people have to make it so hard and you just you just have to observe the other person. I think that that's part of being in a relationship is stepping out of yourself and really observing that other person and figuring out their needs. So you fulfill those needs, you know, it just, I don't know, to me, it's, it's pretty simple, but uh, I know it's, it may not be for people that aren't used to observing. I know observe, actual listening, intentional listening and observing is a hard skill for a lot of people. So if life was a game, what game would it be and why? I love this question. So if life was a game, to me, it would be the game of Tetris. And the reason I say that is because when you look at the events that happen in your life, that, and especially going back to really focusing on what you can't control and what you can control in life, that these events that happen in life, whether it's starting a new job, whether it's gaining some weight, whether it's uh, losing a friend, wh whatever those events are, they, they come at you and you might not, you might not know what to do with those events, right? Like they're, they're inconvenient. They're, you know, they just, they're just not coming at, at the right time. And a lot of times, especially with job losses, layoffs, uh, deaths, uh, huge changes, like a, an illness or, you know, getting in a motorcycle accident, you weren't anticipating all of that. But if we look at those events as an opportunity to adapt, I believe that we will suffer less. Because the thing is, is that you can't, you had this accident this morning and with that accident, you know, you're probably going to be pretty, 
store <laughs> tomorrow <laughs> if you're not already, right? I mean, that's just a natural occurrence of being thrown off your bike. And so, you know, and maybe your your spinal alignment is a little off. So then now you have some issues with uh, with your workouts or something like that. So there, there's always this progression, right? And so you can kind of sit and think like, oh man, I am, and, and dwell on, I, you know, I shouldn't have been riding my bike at this time of day because I knew the traffic was really bad or like you, you start beating yourself up to it and creating this toxic emotions that go along with, well, you had this accident. And, and that was painful and the, your physical part will hopefully get better with time. But that emotional part, we tend to like hold on to the, the emotions and maybe next time you're on your bike, you can take it as instead of being scared to, to ride your motorcycle, you take it as I'm just going to be a little more cautious or I'm however you, you want to spin it. And so with, I think with these events, we just have to be adapt. We have to adapt to whatever circumstances happen to us instead of crying and whining and, you know, boo-hooing about, you know, if something bad happens to me, like a layoff, you know, you, you just, you, you deal with it and move on, you know, and, and certain events take longer to move on than others. Like, I mean, it's losing my parents. I grieved for two, two and a half years and I still very much miss them, but I took action. I went to therapists. I went to counseling groups. I, I actually sat and felt what it was like to think about all the regrets that I had that I didn't get to do with my parents when I see my friends going skiing with their parents and doing, you know, fun stuff with them. I didn't get to experience that with my parents as an adult. I could still hold that grudge, but instead I flipped it around and accepted that their death was a part of my life and that it just happened and that what how can I grow from this and so you make every Tetris piece a lesson you make every person in your life a lesson it your life will be so much smoother it's not going to be easier I hate that word easy but it'll be smoother and you'll get stronger I had not yet considered the downward spiral of ill health that I might experience <laughs> Uh, and in most circumstances, when somebody might say what I just said, they might say, thank you for that sarcastically. But I don't think that way because you remember how I was saying earlier that I figured out at, an, at a young age how to cut the fat. Part of that is, is realizing thoughts that don't serve you. And so if I were to brood over the fact that I can't work, I, I actually couldn't work out today. My wife was going to go without me. And that could lead to, if I'm still eating the same amount that I eat when I'm working out every day, and then I start to gain weight, and then that leads to high blood pressure, it could absolutely be a den that I'm not sleeping well. And, you know, so many problems. So you're absolutely right. But those, those thoughts and emotions don't serve me, so I don't indulge them. And I've always been that way. And that's, that's cutting fat. And when you get a storage unit, that is not the only time that you get a chance to play Tetris as an adult. Right? Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. All right. I love that. Uh, just a couple more questions. If someone dropped a million dollars in your lap tomorrow, what would you do with it? Would you mind if I asked you a question that's 
still back in that other topic we were talking about? I would not mind at all. Okay. So let me ask you, you, you mentioned that you trimmed the fat early, early in, in, your, in your journey. Mm-hmm. How did you become more aware? How did you start to trim that fat? When I was 11 years old, my dad left. And then my mom went. She was, I don't know if she was institutionalized, but if she was, then they didn't tell me about it. And I am so much like my dad that she had trouble even looking at me. And so, so he had left her after 20 years. It was awful, like the fights that we would have. I'm sure they were comparable to what you and your mom had. And so she, I didn't have a, she kicked me out of the house. I got in a fight at school. And she used that as an, as an excuse to kick me out. And so I was 12 years old and I had everything taken from me. And I was at my wedding. My brother said that I was a playground legend. And so I was, I was the sports star and I was dating the cutest girl in school. And it was very mature for my age. And all of that was taken from me because my parents were very selfish. I would think a lot. And I would go for long bike rides and I would just shoot basketball and I would do all these meditative things. And eventually I started to figure a lot of things out and I matured very, very rapidly. And so I started to attach myself to good families. I would only date girls from good families. All of my friends were from good families. And I was the only one from the dysfunctional family, but I knew I needed to get around men that I respected and admired. So I always did that, and that helped to shape me so much. So um, to answer your question, at that young age when I had no control over my circumstances or where I was going to live, all of my friends were taken from me. I I was forced to move to another state, and so I had to adapt. And everything that came after that seemed trivial by comparison. It took me a long time to or why I am the way that I am. And it was hard for me to relate to a lot of people because people were triggered so easily. And I was this emotionally strong and tough person. Um, But I didn't come to realize that until very recently. And, you know, it was probably post-retirement. But the reason I was able to have so much success in business in my career and all of that primarily was because of my ability to detach my emotions from things and take rejection incredibly well. So when you're in business and you're in sales, especially you face a ton of rejection. And once your parents have rejected you, nobody can touch you. Like there's nothing. Oh, you don't like me. So what? (laughs) Like, I don't care. And so I, I, you know, I'm always been a pretty joyful person. So I kind of took on the opposite of, of all that negativity. Anyway, I hope that answers your question. That, that was just incredibly beautiful because especially at a young age, being that aware and emotionally mature is almost unheard of. And so you must have had some pretty incredible influences with the, the families that you were hanging out with and the, the girls' families that you were maybe influenced from their parents, whatever that was. I mean, they... They, they did a great job and, and you did a great job by 
creating that discipline and just being able to distinguish, well, I want to be here. So I need to, to sacrifice the instant gratification. That's kind of the, you know, what's usually presented to us. And so you, which I think is why you are where you are today because <laughs> of that discipline. Fantastic. Uh, thank you. And I, and I do credit my parents with a lot of it too, ironically, because they got me involved in Catholic school when I was a kid. And so I spent a lot of time in prayer. And when I started meditating a few years ago, I realized how similar prayer and meditation were because you're just being quiet in solitude and it helps you to focus. So whenever my, my thoughts would deviate from the prayer or whatever it is that I was saying to God, I could bring my attention back to what it was that I was trying to do. And uh, so that's why I, I was like, oh man, this is just like prayer. But I started doing that at a very young age because I needed it. I, yeah, I credit, I credit prayer and um, the delayed gratification really came from sports. So even that part, I think, came from God. And oh, I even get into discussions with friends now about what God is and whether God is internal. And so when I was really young, I was, you know, quote unquote, what somebody referred to me as a playground legend. I used to be thankful for that because it didn't seem fair that I was so much better at sports than other kids. And so every night I would express gratitude to God for this ability that I was given. I didn't do anything for it. So, yeah, I didn't expect to go here on this podcast, but yeah, it's interesting. So just be grateful. I think you get more of it. And so as I got older, I got faster. Yeah, so I've always felt like be a good steward of what you have, your money, for example, and God will see to it that you get more of it. Completely agree. Completely agree. So when's your book coming out? Well, right now, spring 2020 is when it's coming out. So I am eyeballs deep in writing the book currently. I'm working with an editor right now. And it's it's an up and down process. But I... I'm so excited about this. Like I, I'm so excited about this book because it's it's everything that I've wanted to say, and now I'm finally putting in it into one big document. So <laughs> it's, uh, it feels good. Very cool. I'm gonna attend a writing workshop in Austin, Texas, in January. The guy's name is Tucker Max. He has a company called Scribe, and so it's a two-day workshop. They I don't know exactly what it entails. I'd have to go back through the material, but they help you to write your first book. And so I'm going to do that too. So let me know how it goes. Awesome. How's, yeah. How's your book writing going? Well, have you started I've, yet? I have, but I put it on hold because once I committed to this course, they told me to put everything on hold. So they really want to coach you from zero. So I'm going to take their advice. It's not that far away. So I can work on other things in the meantime. I think one of the most interesting things that I've learned through writing this book is that 
when you approach writing it every single day, which I'm doing, I, five days a week, I dedicate four to five hours to writing it. And that could be anywhere from actually making the, the clicking sound on my keyboard to reviewing, making research, finding statistics, you know, looking at inspiration. So it's not that I'm, you know, I'm getting after it every for five hours every single day. It's, it's kind of an ebb and flow. But uh, I, every day is so different. And I've had to <laughs> really step up my, my meditation in the morning to clear my head because it's amazing the self-limiting beliefs that come across, especially when you're writing about controversial things, and which I, I tend to write about uh, in the book. So it's, it's pretty, pretty amazing to watch yourself go through the flow. But I also, this, this is very different than my last business where I was rushing through, just getting things done, worried about the bottom line constantly. And I'm really trying to enjoy the process this time. And so it's a, it's a very different experience. So I hope that if that's one thing that I can give to you or any listeners out there who are writing a book or thinking about writing a book, that every day is so different that they're writing and that you just have to be really patient with yourself, but also be incredibly disciplined that you have time set to that when you're going to write. And, uh, and then you just, you just have to, you may have to up your, your, you know, your affirmations or meditation or anything that you do in your morning routine to kind of pump yourself up uh, because it will, it will be a ride <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I hear it's one of the hardest things to do. And you're right. I'm, I'm writing an article right now about how inspiration follows action, not the reverse. So have you read The War of Art yet by Stephen Pressfield? I haven't, no. Highly, highly recommend it. Any, any okay. writer or author should read it, and I, I think you'll love it. I, in fact, I have never done this, but I recommend the audio version of that book more so than the printed version. He's, he's talking about a famous author, and he asked him if, if he only writes when he's inspired, and he said, yeah, absolutely. An inspiration strikes every morning at 9 a.m. <laughs> so the point is to get your ass in the seat of your desk and get to work. I've got to ask, you said yeah. controversy in the book. What is the um, one piece of controversy that you think would uh, pique my interest? It's about stepping out of the race that you never signed up for mm. and getting into your lane. Is that perspective that you've gotten from being in an RV? From living the lifestyle that you're living now? Because I definitely see the rat race with different glasses on now that I'm out of America. It looks completely different. And it's, it's one of those things where people told me before I started traveling that you, it's going to change the way you think. And I was, you know, I just kind of rubbed just like, yeah, I, I get it, dude. But no, it's been overwhelming. The perspective that I have now of America, it's so, so much different. Absolutely. I mean, it's, the thing is, is that and I, the way that I wanted to say it was to step out of the race you never wanted to be in, find your lane and proceed to win. And I think that especially when you are in the race, you think that that's it. You think that, that that's your option, that you have to work this certain job, you have to make this certain money, you have to have this house and this car to show this prestige and this uh this professionalism. And 
what I love to talk about is redefining what professionalism is and redefining what it means to, to, to work and have fulfillment instead of to work to just work. And I, I just think that especially when, when, when you're, when you have this thought of that our, our culture and society has put on us to think this certain way that to bring in this new thought pattern, which I'm not going to take credit for this because <laughs> so many philosophers and people have talked about stepping out of the rat race. It's, this is just my perspective, right? And it, I think that anytime you, you go a little bit against the grain, it's going to be controversial. And so I'm, I'm encouraging people to ask the question, why? To ask, why are they doing this? And really dig deep and go down that rabbit hole of continuing to ask why until you figure out, well, maybe this isn't for me. And maybe, maybe this is. Or why am I living this life if I sit here and I scroll through Instagram looking at travel, people that are traveling, like, why am I not traveling? And so it's, it's all about getting that, that, that you have control in your life. And, but letting go of things you can't control. Like that, that's the big controversy there is letting go of that control. So well said. I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> yeah, that's well said. I think, I think many people right. the work, unfortunately, to fill the void that anxiety might fill. And it's a cultural thing. And that's another thing that you realize when you step out of it is you're really a, we're products of our environment. Like I, I would not have imagined. And when you visit another culture and you realize that they don't, value a constant hustle the way that we do in America it's it's really enlightening like whoa man we we we're this way for a reason and it's to primarily increase the standard of living of everyone I say this a lot like when you're stressed out at 11 p.m. because you need to return a client email in the grand scheme of things of life how much does that matter what is it going to do? All of that just in, so that you can buy a car that has a $600 a month car payment instead of a $350? Like, why are you doing this? We all drive these incredibly fancy cars and live in these 3,000 square foot houses. And what's it all for? How much happier are we as a result of that? We're not. So why are you stressing yourself out? Yeah. yeah. Very good. Yeah. Where can people find you online, Glenda? Where can the, how can they connect with you? Yeah, so my, my website is called The Status Quo, and that's F-O-E as in the enemy. That the status quo is the enemy to living the life you truly deserve. So thestatusquo.com. And uh, if, they, if you're interested in my book, you can go to, uh, there's a link there for signing up for my newsletter, which promotes the different videos and blogs that I put out. And, uh, and there you can find updates for when the book will actually come out. And, uh, and I'm excited about it. So. Very good. Well, since we're both fans of the Stoics and in the coming weeks, I'll be writing on menoverseas.com about what we can do to make the best use of time as we enter a new decade. And you're going to be doing big things at the start of the decade, right? Your book comes out in spring of 2020. I thought I would take us out with a passage from one of my favorite Stoics, Seneca. So this is from The Shortness of Life. It says, 
It's not that we have a short time to live, but that we waste a lot of it. Life is long enough and a sufficiently generous amount has been given to us for the highest achievements if it were all well invested. But when it's wasted in heedless luxury and spent on no good activity, we are forced at last by death's final constraint to realize that it has passed away before we knew it was passing. So it is. We are not given a short life, but we make it short, and we are, we are not ill-supplied, but wasteful of it. Life is long if you know how to use it. And that is Seneca. This was really enjoyable. Um, I hope that you will come on again in the future after your book is released and we can talk about more of the controversy, hopefully. I love it. Thanks, Brad, so much for having me. This is such a wonderful conversation. So I look forward to the next one. Likewise. Thank you. Listeners, whether you're tuning in on AirPods or in the car or you've got your jam box up on your shoulder, I want you to know how much I appreciate you listening. If you would be so kind as to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, I'd like to send you a gift from Southeast Asia. Reviews help others find the show, and I'd love it if somebody was somebody's life was improved by listening, even if it's in some small way. Lady O and I always find the post office wherever we are so that we can send postcards and little surprises to listeners. If you wish to follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter, I am at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks.